Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me while I've got you. You can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features, breaking news, opinion pieces, and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. In our first segment, Chris Whittingham and I will talk about global soccer news. The second segment will be my interview with John Orand of the Sports Business Journal on the huge new NBC Premier League deal. And in the third segment, we'll talk about the NWSL final and the MLS playoffs. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, Chris? I was trying to figure out the number of zeros that it takes for $2.7 billion uh, so that I can figure out that math. That is a crazy TV deal, and uh, you're going to talk about it with John Oran, who broke the story on, was that Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon? Thursday, I think. Yeah. That was uh, pretty seismic in the soccer world, uh, especially in the United States. But I don't even think my calculator goes up to $2.7 billion when you think about it, my old-fashioned calculator, which... Shows you how much is being spent on soccer in America right now. Pretty incredible stuff. We'll get into more detail on that here in just a bit. But let's start with world soccer headlines, my friend. Man United finally has fired Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, club historical figure, so let's give him that. Uh, and and a good man, but like this was not a hard decision, right? After a four-one defeat to Watford and just a long sort of decline to this point. Yeah, it, and it's kind of surprising because, in fairness to him, like the club was on an upward trajectory heading into this season. I think they have a lot of soul searching to do on why this season has gone so wrong. We've talked about what's happened with Cristiano Ronaldo coming in, but. This was obvious for several games now. You look at the way that they went behind against Atalanta in the Champions League, they managed to dig out some results. Then they take a hammering against Liverpool. A lot of United fans felt it should have happened then. Then they lose 2-0 to Man City, but you kind of feel like, well, that was a hammering at the hands of Man City. It just happened to be 2-0. And then the Watford performance was just so dire. And I was I watched that entire game live. And I actually made some money on it because I'm watching it and I'm going, well, Watford's just better here. They haven't scored yet, but they're better. So, like, I, I put, like, 20 bucks on Watford to win the game, and they duly did. And it was just because I have eyes and I can see that Manchester United <laughs> did not improve over the course of the two weeks in between the Man City game and this one. And you see the number of holes that there are in this team. You can see a team that is struggling to play out from the back, to string passes together, to have any kind of defensive solidity. David De Gea kept this from being 6-7-1 or seven, one away at Watford. It had so clearly arrived at the end of the road, and it so clearly signaled that Manchester United are a world behind in terms of management compared to the other big six clubs at the moment. I think the difference between where Solskjaer is and even Mikel Arteta is fairly significant. And so they now have to figure out over the course of the next six months or if not sooner, where is their world-class manager going to come from? Because the obvious one is not really there at the moment. No, and it seems like Zinedine Zidane just doesn't have the interest in this job. And so what Man United has announced is they're going to have Michael Carrick taking over the team for right now. There's going to be another interim manager, unless Carrick just sets the world on fire, who comes in and takes over the team for the rest of the season. And then the new manager will come in to start next season. If that happens, 
at least the possibility of IX manager Eric Ten Hag is there. That that timeline sets up the possibility of landing him. And, you know, I think that would be a good hire for Man United. So maybe we're finally starting to see some degree of not just short-termism from the management of this club, but that's what we've seen for the last decade or so now. And that's the the part that sets me off. And, you know, look, I recognize, I have a lot of respect for what Man United has achieved over the decades, what Sir Alex Ferguson achieved, but this is not a club that has come into the modern era, the modern game over the last decade. And they've really clung to this for the longest time, not having a strong director of football separate from a head coach, as we've seen continental teams do, as we've seen other teams in England do. And that resistance has been a real problem in my mind. You need to have a strong director of football who has a long-term vision and doesn't make emotional signings like Cristiano Ronaldo and several other ones we've seen has uh, a a style of play that they're looking to achieve over the long term. And that guides signings. No one's saying that Man United doesn't spend money on players. They do. They just spend money stupidly on players. Well, and towards no philosophy, right? And right. I like and and that's the thing that's been so bizarre to me is they talk about a Manchester United DNA, right? There's a DNA and there I think the reason why they held on to Ole for so long is because there's strong figures within the board and within the club and the ex-players that are such a big part of English media punditry that talk so much about basically wanting to make Manchester United great again in a way, right? Like bring back all of the things that Sir Alex was able to implement. But I think Sir Alex was a unique figure, and I think they keep trying to chase, well, we're just going to be that team. And I think you kind of have to, as you say, modernize, bring in coaching techniques of the new era, move to a more modern style of play, because the old school, you know, when we're at home, we attack, attack, attack. We don't really care about keeping the ball. It's just throw numbers forward and attack and go at them and have shots and and have a go. Like, I I just don't know if, one, there's a coach who's who's at a really high level that can implement that. Like, I'm maybe Gasparini and Atalanta is kind of the only one who approaches the game that way, but a, a lot of coaches go about it in a more detailed way. So you have to modernize with the coach, and you have to stop trying to grab at the glory years, at trying to recreate what Manchester United used to be, because off the field, they have. Off the field, they've become a completely different club, an incredible success from a commercial standpoint, but on the field, they're still clinging to the past. And I think the strong voices in the media continue to hold them to their past instead of moving on, becoming something different. Like, I I honestly don't know when Pep Guardiola arrived in Manchester City if, like, United fans would have wanted Pep Guardiola because he is a departure from who they think of themselves as. Like, I've heard Gary Neville, no, I don't want Antonio Conte. He's a mercenary. (laughs) And it's like, that's not adhering to the modern realities of the game. The game has changed, and Manchester United are kind of the last ones to realize it. The problem is the history. The problem actually is the alums who have such a a voice, a sway over this team. Manchester United reminds me of a a legacy print magazine, basically. Like, they, they, they still make money the old way. They never embrace the new way because they never really had to until they needed to. And now it's too late. And 
I, I think there's a real issue there, and I think it's going to be a long-term project to make it part of the modern game. Um, I don't know if they're going to get there, in all honesty. And they, they certainly have an advantage in that they've got a lot of money, but I wouldn't want to be a print a legacy print magazine right now. And that's what Man United <laughs> is. And, and, and I think they're, they're still in some ways trapped because of it. And I'm very curious to see if they can find a way out. And if you think of like the major influences, right? Like Sir Alex Ferguson is still a part of the club, right? And so like, he's probably, ha- he has a voice in the room. He was caught on tape saying that they should, you know, they should be starting Cristiano Ronaldo in every match. Like he still kind of has a role to play. And even in the lack of planning, you see it in how this is handled. It's an interim to hire an interim to bring aboard a full-time manager. When the full-time manager to replace Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has appeared on multiple occasions. When Thomas Tuchel left Paris Saint-Germain. When Maurizio Pochettino left Spurs. When Maurizio Pochettino was waiting to take the PSG job. I think he wanted that Manchester United job. They could have just gotten and got Pochettino. When Antonio Conte was available after after leaving Inter Milan. He took the Spurs job instead because Man United were holding on to this notion of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer working out. And so they've kind of been left as the last club without a major option to go to, as you say, without having to convince, right? Because as it, Eric Ten Hag, who's the coach at Ajax, has turned down some big jobs. Like, he stayed at Ajax, and by the way, this is a really good Ajax team. Like, I can understand why he's wanted to see this through and would much rather, I think, see this season through with, with Ajax than jump aboard a Manchester United train that uh, they're playing a ton of games over the course of the next couple of months, and you're trying to piece this thing together on, a fly, on the fly, probably with a group of pieces that he would not want to work with necessarily so I think it's going to take some convincing to to get him in the first place never mind during the summer so I I think the idea that Manchester United are now left without a major managerial option and could potentially turn to like a Laurent Blanc or another of these interim choices that don't really solve any of their problems the only one that I've heard in the last 24 hours that actually sounds appealing to me would be Ralph Ranić. Who, who, who could potentially mm-hmm. take over on an interim basis. He's kind of been linked with these kinds of jobs before. He's the only one for me that would make any sense. I think he'd be a really interesting choice. I'd actually prefer to see Ralph Ragnick as the director of football and, yeah. and give him a real mandate to have an impact on building this team in the long term and and then hire Tenag or, or, or another head coach. I think that would be a good way to go because what Man United needs is an overall long-term direction. The problem over the last 10 years, for the most part, in my in my mind, has not been the managers. And I, I realize they've had some bad hires and some unsuccessful situations, but it's it, the problem is the overall structure of Man United. And until they change that for real, uh, I, I just don't see them competing. Uh, at least at the very highest levels, uh, like they like they want to. Um, I do want to get into the rest of the Premier League because it's becoming a three-team race at this point, and a really interesting one at that. You know, you've got Liverpool, you've got Chelsea, you've got Manchester City, and all three this weekend had really convincing wins uh, and, and performed extremely well, and it, it becomes a race, I hope, over the next several months in which they really do hold each other accountable and you're really keeping an eye on each one to see can they keep pace. Liverpool just, you know, 
Big win over Arsenal, 4-0, especially in the second half of this game. Nice little scrap between Jurgen Klopp and Mikel Arteta in this one, which was kind of fun and brought some edge to the whole thing. But actually seemed to fire up Liverpool to just hammer them the rest of the way. Uh, What did you make from this game? Yeah, the the Liverpool crowd really woke to life on a a night, on a Saturday night in the Premier League once that. I I love a good touchline row. You you, you know that's what they were calling in the UK, a touchline row. Uh, between Jurgen Klopp and Mikel Arteta. And yeah, I mean, Liverpool, you know, I felt like we're always going to break this Arsenal team down just because I thought Arsenal really struggled to play out. They were continuing to try and play. I thought in the second half, they made it far too easy on Liverpool just in terms of giving the ball away in dangerous moments. They did it again and again. And actually, it's funny in a 4-0 result. For me, the player of the match was Aaron Ramsdale, the Arsenal goalkeeper, producing several incredible saves to only have it be 4-0. I thought Arsenal made it far too easy. It's a step back. I think they have a similar distaste of playing at Anfield away as Manchester City do. I mean, look, a lot of teams go to Anfield away and struggle, but Arsenal and Man City in particular in that big six are teams that just get hammered there every time that they go. City have made a better go of it the last couple times that they've been, but Arsenal... It always seems like when they go there, they have a bad performance. But at some point, they've done well over the course of the last six or seven games before the international breaks to get on a good run. They were in the top five entering this match, and then they get put back down to earth, and you recognize there's still a long way to go. Arsenal is still building their team, but Liverpool are very clearly the finished article. They're very clearly a team that's in contention to go and win this title. Yeah, and Arsenal's not. I, I don't want to like just hammer Arsenal because of this result, because I feel like overall they're moving in a better direction than it felt like at the beginning of the season and I don't think this one result at a very good Liverpool team changes that Um, that said these are teams of different class and I, I kind of feel like that's how you separate the top three teams in the Premier League from all the rest at this point because Chelsea just really made easy work of Leicester City at Leicester City, and this is a good Leicester team, or at least has a, it, there, there's good players, a good manager there, and and there was really never any doubt about this. Plus, Christian Pulisic comes on, gets another goal, and this might be a real springboard for him to get back to being an impact player at club level. Yeah, and I was talking today with uh, Mike Ryan of the Levitard Show, and we had him on during the Land of and Woody in Cincinnati, and we were talking about Pulisic, and I think that Tuchel's public comments about the U.S. not overworking him during this international break is a real signal that, I mean, very clearly Thomas Tuchel views Christian Pulisic as an important part of Chelsea going to win the Premier League this year, that he needs Pulisic to be playing and playing well in order for Chelsea to go and win the league this year. So I think the fact that he comes on, he plays in that false nine position. They've been trying to figure out different options with Romelu Lukaku still away uh, due to injury. But Pulisic comes in, plays that role, and plays it well. That opens up that portal for Greg Berhal to, pretend, to potentially use him there uh, if you know center forward options don't appear in the next couple of months here for the U.S. men's national team. But yeah, he's very clearly an important part. And I find so interesting because Manchester United, we just talked about them, Cristiano Ronaldo scores their goals. If he doesn't score, then, you know, like, they, they're struggling to find secondary and tertiary options. The interesting thing to me about City and about Chelsea in this title run-in 
is you go into every game not knowing who their goal scorers are going to be. Right. If you said, like, pick two or three players, like, you can pick the entire front six. You can, For Chelsea, you can pick their wingbacks. You can pick their defenders. Like, I think over 40% of Chelsea's goals this year have come from defenders. It's incredible the balance they have in their scoring attack. And you don't know where it's going to come from. And yet every game, they come up with the goals that they need to win games and be top of the league heading into the holiday period. You know, I, I want to like develop this a little more here because much in the same way that we talked about, and you brought this up about a month ago, Serginho Dest maybe being a winger for the U.S., as we've seen now for Barcelona, Christian Pulisic as potentially a center forward, a false nine for the U.S., not the craziest idea, especially because the U.S. hasn't found the guaranteed answer in that position yet. And the goal that Pulisic scored against Mexico had some similarities to the goal he scored for Chelsea this weekend. It's just like a guy who gets to the ball first in a position to score, has a nose for the goal, and that's kind of a hard thing to find in this sport. You know, I devoted an entire chapter of my book a couple years ago to Javier Chicharito Hernandez and his ability to smell the goal, to like get to the ball first in the box and get these goals that you're kind of like, wow, not the most skillful thing ever, but just that talent of being able to anticipate. Christian Pulisic has that talent. He has that ability to get to the ball just a fraction of a second ahead of a defender and a fraction of a second better more quickly than other people forwards in that position do. And I I agree with you. I think that that's his greatest skill. It's kind of like being mentally sharper than every other player on the field. I think that's what Chicharito does, and I think that's what Pulisic does. He's always thinking, all right, this guy's about to shoot. If the keeper saves it, where will he save it to? Can I be in that position? And he's always thinking an extra step ahead. And it's so often in in good position to score as a result. I guess the question would be, so he has that skill. The question is, outside of that, are you taking away Pulisic's best skill set running at defenders using his pace if you play him in that center forward position? Are you going to starve him of the ball, right? Because that that's a real concern for false nines is to do you all of a sudden not touch the ball as much? Is he going to be moving way out of position just to have a touch of it? That way he can feel like he's in the game. In CONCACAF, physically, is he going to, you know, stand up against big center backs that are going to be kicking him and, and you know, giving him elbows? Th- those would be my concerns, but you're right. I mean, I-, I think that this is a kind of training ground to see if maybe this can work and Greg Berhalter can-, can get a sample size at club level before maybe trying something and experimenting at national team level. No, I think it's a good point. I also think that, like, Pulisic gets manhandled as it is when he tries to cut in on the ball from the wing and he draws so many fouls that way for club and country. But it's not like doing, you know, using him as a winger is going to cause him to be dealt with less physically, I think. I I think he's already dealing with that a tremendous amount right now. One other thing I want to talk about in segment one, I know it's domestic, not world, but it's a final. So we're going to talk NWSL final here. Washington Spirit 2, Chicago Red Stars 1 in extra time. And I think the storyline out of this game is Trinity Rodman's a star. The 19-year-olds just took over this game in the second half ended up getting the assist on the game winner, but like her energy, I thought, 
sent a huge a huge message in this game. Yeah, I thought, and I've I've had you know I've commentated a couple of Washington Spirit matches this season, and Trinity Rodman for me is always the player that I'm interested in watching. Is the standout, and I think she's on her way to the full U.S. Women's National Team before long. It's an absolute star, and again, you know, we talk about you know tropes, you know, pace and power and all that stuff. Like, no, she's an incredibly skillful player, and I think you saw. In the game, it was like a big-time players in big-time games kind of thing, which is remarkable for a rookie, right? Again, she's 19. We talk about 19-year-olds all the time in the men's game, but in the women's game, teenagers playing at a really high level is not that common. And Trinity Rodman looked like the big-time player in the big-time game for the Washington Spirit. Doesn't get the goal, but puts herself about, creates all kinds of chances, is the danger player. And so, you're right. I think she's absolutely the standout from this game. Is definitely one to watch for the U.S. Women's National Team. And, you know, what a pick for Washington. What a bizarre circumstance to win a title. But I think she's a huge part of the reason why they did. Yeah, and... I, I know she doesn't have a close relationship with her dad, Dennis Rodman, the NBA Hall of Famer, but I will say this. There are elements of the energy that Rodman brings to a soccer field that remind me of the way her dad played basketball in a couple of ways. Just Pest, who frustrates yeah. <laughs> opponents. Second also is like, I think sometimes people forget that Dennis Rodman was a technician when it came to the art of rebounding. And I look. I, I think Trinity Rodman is a technician on the ball, very good on it, uh, just fearless, does things or attempts to do things that few other players do on the field. And you combine that with the energy that she brought, also very Dennis Rodman-like, that kind of scares opponents. And you know, you're like, not only did she not play any college ball when it came down to it, like... Like she's yeah she's 19. She didn't play like one year or two years. She played zero years. And so for her to be bringing this to a professional situation, a final, and being I think the most influential player in it, suggests that she has an even bigger upside. And I just can't wait to see what her future brings. Um, I also just want to add before we have a uh, we go to our interview with John Orand. Uh, let's. Let's discuss this because this is really the news of the week away from the field. NBC uh, getting the next six years of the Premier League in the United States for $2.7 billion. Just crazy money. I think doubling the outlay for the previous contract. And I'm wondering because we saw a couple of people say this. This is the moment that soccer became the fifth major sport in the United States. Would you go so far as to say that? Um, I mean, sir. I mean, in terms of the money paid, uh, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. I, I just went back and, and and looked it up. I think their first three years, they were paying close to eighty million a season. It was three years, two fifty, and now we're talking about four hundred and fifty million a season for the same product, and that. NBC is building, you know, from, from what I read, there's a lot of, you know, industry talk about how the USA network is moving a lot to sports. It's kind of going to become the TNT of the NBC Universal portfolio. And they needed the Premier League. Like, it was part of the business model to have 
Saturday and Sunday mornings taken care of from an advertising standpoint because you have the Premier League as a really strong product for NBC Universal, for Peacock to drive subscriptions. It's been a huge driver of subscriptions. And I think the reason why, if you want to call it the fifth professional sport, is because its fans are now respected for the money that they drive. Now, unfortunately for us, that means we're paying a lot of money, right? More money than if we were to, you know, just be a part of the cable bundle or that NFL fans pay to watch, you know, games over the air if they wanted to. But I think there are enough soccer fans that it's respected by major businesses. NBC, Fox, Turner, ESPN, Viacom are all in the race because they know that there's a huge amount of money to be made through soccer fans. And it's the respect of our dollar, if anything, that earns the respect on a bigger basis. Yeah, I'm with you on all of that. And it, it really did seem like this was crucial for NBC to win this bid they got rid of the NHL. They were focusing ha- on having the Premier League. And it would be hard to imagine what their strategy for Peacock would look like if they didn't have the Premier League to be a part of that. Just be all wrestling fans. Yeah. Um, so I also think that, that it sort of keeps the the plate tectonics similarly in place when it comes to the sport of soccer and in all the television channels because if the premier league wasn't on nbc would the would nbc go for any other soccer rights maybe not who knows and and so at least this way we'll continue to have the availability to watch the best soccer in the United States and feel like you don't need to like do something crazy. You know, like I'll get into, into this in my interview with John Oran, just about my own personal issues. I, I don't like the fact that NBC puts the Premier League behind multiple paywalls as opposed to just one, like the other domestic leagues and champions league uh, are in the United States. You're going to have to pay two fees if you want to see the Premier League games. Uh, I don't think that's cool, but maybe not all that surprising considering how much money is being spent. Yeah, and uh, John Skipper, who is uh, our boss here at Metal Arc Media, uh, has talked about the amount of money that's still in the pay TV cable bundle industry, right? And NBC Universal and all these companies are still going to want to make it for as long as they possibly can. Even in the age of cord cutters, there's still enough to be made that you know they, they're going to try and, and make money off both revenue streams. And it is unfortunate for us as customers sometimes, but uh, you know, in some ways, it is a, a cool nod of respect that they, like we're valued in this way, right? That if you kind of add up the total rights packages of all the deals, kind of nearing on a billion dollars a year that's being paid for soccer rights by all these major companies. The MLS TV deal is coming up. You wonder, again, because I think the, the Premier League race, I think, was in some parts about who is the preeminent soccer uh, service, right? So if it leaves NBC, if it goes to Fox, they have every major summer tournament for the most part, for the next eight years, six years, I think. And it would that would cover the life of this Premier League deal. So Fox becomes huge. If Paramount gets it, they have the Champions League, the Premier League, Serie A, major CONCACAF properties, they're on their way. And if ESPN gets it, you have the Premier League, La Liga, and Bundesliga, probably the three best leagues in the world, all on one streaming service. So I think that race is kind of being put off. And who knows whether or not these, co- these companies who earmarked this money towards spending on the Premier League are like, all right, maybe Major League Soccer 
Tucker doesn't get the full $450 million a year, but something close, and, and they stand to benefit, and that obviously be huge for the game in this country, just in terms of supporting the sport, is if MLS, the local league, gets a huge amount of payouts that they can improve the quality of league through spending. So we'll have Witty back on for segment three. We're going to talk about the MLS playoffs. For now, though, listen to my interview with John O'Ran. Our guest now is one of the top sports television reporters in the business. John Orand works for the Sports Business Journal and co-hosts a terrific new podcast with Andrew Marchand of the New York Post called the Marchand and Orand Sports Media Podcast. You should check it out. Last week, John broke the news that NBC had won the bidding for the next six years of U.S. television rights for the English Premier League. On Twitter, he's Orand, O-U-R-A-N-D underscore S-B-J. John, it's great to see you. Congrats on breaking the news and thanks for coming on the show. Grant, you should have seen the number of focus groups that we had to go through to come up with that title, Marchand and Oran Sports Media Podcast. So, yeah, thank you for plugging that. <laughs> it's definitely a good podcast. I'm, I'm you know, and, and you guys treat soccer like any other sport, which I think soccer f- fans really appreciate. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of soccer news going on uh, in, in the sports media TV side of things. We had been waiting for months to see if NBC would extend with the Premier League or if some upstart would end up getting it. What are your top line takeaways from this deal getting done for NBC? And, and what's the value of it, by the way? I've seen different figures from two million to like 2.7 million or billion. I had uh, it's a six year deal. I had it between 2.6 and 2.7 billion dollars a year. So going up around like 430 to 450 million dollars a year for NBC. And so I have a couple of takeaways from it. Um, one is this was like an existential uh, bit of rights for NBC. NBC had lost the NHL. You know, they, they had been saving up money. This was a very important uh, part of their business, not just for the broadcast network and for USA, because uh, NBCSN is closing. So they're moving a lot of those windows to USA Network, but also for their streaming service. This, if they had lost, let's say, the, uh, the Premier League to ESPN or CBS, imagine how many subscribers would have ditched Peacock to then go to ESPN Plus or Paramount Plus. <laughs> exactly. So there, I'm it was in my hand. <laughs> it was an existential uh, a bit of rights for NBC. They had to keep them. But what really surprised me is the a number of big media networks that got together to to try to get it. So ESPN and CBS, they came with a combined bid. Their bid ended up being between 370 million to like 380 million. So they came with a, a, a really significant bid. I think that they had thought that they could potentially get that bid. You know, if he, if NBC went went crazy with their bid, they weren't going to get it. But I think that they thought they were going to get it. But another aspect, Warner Media. Right before they're going to uh, merge with Discovery, they went whole hog on this. And they put, I'm not entirely certain what their bid is. I heard it was more than NBC's. I heard it was comparable to NBC's. But they came with a really big bid to try to get the Premier League rights. They were going to use Fox as a broadcast partner to, to allow it on broadcast. But they're going to put it, I would assume, on either HBO Max or Bleacher Report and wait until the Discovery merge comes and then and then really kind of uh, bust that out. And the good news 
if you're a sports rights holder, is that Warner Media and Discovery together, Jeff Zucker, David Zaslov, huge sports fans, and that's something that 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 they're really really excited about. And I think the third thing, if I if you, if you want uh, you know three takeaways from this, Amazon put in a bid. Fox was going to be their broadcast partner. Amazon has deep enough pockets to buy and sell uh, Comcast, NBC, probably two or three times over, and they did not come up with it. I have been writing for a decade about here come the digital guys. The digital guys have come, but those digital guys have come with existing media companies. They've come with ESPN+, Plus. they've come with Paramount+, Plus, and the winner for this one was Peacock. You know, that's really interesting. So Fox actually partnered with more than one bid, is what you're saying, which I, I, I didn't realize that. And, and we had seen Fox essentially have a strategy the last few years of going for big summer soccer international tournaments, but start to move away from the the domestic leagues the club game is fox's role in these bids mostly just as uh, a network to show big games for a partner that they came in with that didn't have that avail- that ability yeah fox's strategy is clear when it comes to soccer they like the national the the national teams and they like mm. the, they like big tournaments they like the euros they like the world's cup they like the women's world cup uh Fox, though, has a strategy of live events and uh, putting live events on their broadcast uh, network. And so if they can get some of these morning, early afternoon windows of huge brands uh, like, you know, Manchester United or Arsenal or or whoever, whoever else is out there, they're going to do that. that, So it doesn't necessarily fit in with their soccer strategy, but they were going to be an add on almost to to the EPL. Uh, um, Actually, are they still the EPL or are they just the PL now? I think they're just the the Premier League. Yeah, I I say Premier League. Premier Premier League can say what you want. People I get stuck on EPL. I've been doing EPL for forever, but uh, the Premier League. EPL is fine, too. Like we have an open tent here on whatever you want to call the sport, (laughs) soccer, football, calcio, whatever. I'm not going to get on anyone for that. Um, And, you know, it's it is interesting, though, just I never. I, I tweeted this 15 years ago. If you had told me that this many billion billions of dollars would be being spent on U.S. soccer television rights in the year 2021, I, I think I would have just keeled over because, like, I, I wouldn't have believed it possible. And here it's happening. And so I, I do wonder: Do you think that NBC, which, in my opinion, and a lot of opinions, has done a really good job broadcasting the Premier League since they got it in 2012? Now that they're spending so much more money on it over the next six years, do you think they'll spend even more on the actual production, or do you think that'll mostly stay the same? Uh, I, I expect it'll stay the same. I mean, I, you're in the soccer community. This, the production for NBC, everything I've heard from people is that it's been top-notch, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it's fantastic. They have people on the ground like Arlo White and his analysts uh, for those games, a, a few times a year, it seems like they send over their studio people to be on site at games. And, and that type of um, going the extra mile isn't something that every broadcaster does with their soccer leagues. And I appreciate how NBC's done it. And NBC also, remember, Comcast owns Sky over there, so they can have a lot more sharing of talent and sharing of resources. So that, so that, that certainly uh, can help out uh, over there. But for this... For, for, 
to me, the main reason that the prices were, were going uh, through the roof is, you know, not because of traditional television. There still hasn't been, uh, I'm, look, I'm a big Premier League fan, but, let, you know, let, let's get real. There, there has not been an audience that has seen the Premier League of uh, uh, that's been over 2 million uh, viewers, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, which is not niche. It's just, you know, in terms of like a, a major U.S. sport or a major U.S. Um, um, uh, league that's out mm-hmm. there. This, more than anything else, is, is, a, is media companies valuing, and some would say overvaluing, live sports rights as a way to, to uh, really just move to the future and to, uh, to try to promote their, their streaming as well. And the Premier League are very happy beneficiaries of this. The Premier League has, as we went through before, they have great global sports brands if, if you want to talk about teams as brands i mean i i would suggest that you can talk to general sports fans and they can rattle off at least five probably 10 premier league teams uh the you know the, the popularity of ted lasso i think like uh, people might dismiss that but i think it really helps get sort of uh, ingraining people into the culture of of of, uh, of english football and um and i so i think all of that sort of played in to the bid that not only nbc but the other the big media companies made there now i do have one major issue with nbc and that is if you are a consumer and you subscribe to espn plus or paramount plus and full disclosure i work for cbs uh on the side uh you get every game from la liga the bundesliga champions league and syria ah so There's just one paywall if you want to see those leagues. But if you want to see every game from the Premier League, both now and moving forward, they said, NBC makes consumers have multiple paywalls. So you have to pay for Peacock streaming and you have to pay additionally to get the cable only games. And I mean, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience here. I'm a cord cutter. I pay $65 a month for YouTube TV, a cable equivalent, so that I can get NBCSN or USA, so I can get Premier League games that you cannot get anywhere else. And I don't like the fact that there's multiple paywalls if you want to watch all the Premier League games. That's not the case if you're watching Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie A, and Champions League, where you can like get Paramount Plus and you're going to get every single game. Do you think NBC realizes how frustrating that is for consumers? And do you think they'll do anything about it? And, and why are they different from ESPN Plus and Paramount Plus in this regard? So, so th- th- there, there are a bunch of ways that I want to ad- address this question. One, one is that um, you know, the, it, the, the current for current sports fans to consume sports across sports this is not unique to to uh, football it's not unique to uh the premier league you have to have a cable subscription you have to have at least one maybe two uh streaming subscriptions what if let's just uh, hypothesize that espn and cbs won that won this bid you would have to subscribe to uh, some sort of cable bundle, whether it's YouTube TV or you know Comcast or Charter or, Dire- or DirecTV, you would have to subscribe to ESPN Plus. You'd have to subscribe to Paramount Plus, and that's the only way 
to, to, get, to get everything in there. So there was no good solution that anybody could take a look at to say, like, boy, I just wish, you know, ESPN had had it and I can just get a cable subscription and watch, and watch them all on ESPN. That, that didn't exist. Um, so will NBC listen to the frustration of the fans? No, the only way the only way that they will listen to the frustration of the fans if is if it hits their pocketbook. But when Arsenal plays Spurs and I have to pay extra for that, you know, if you're a big Arsenal or Spurs fans to see the Derby, you're going to have to pay for that. And you're going to pay for that because they have you. They have you hooked on that. And that's part of their business to, 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 to try to grow that business. And that my third point on that is that this is a six year deal. This is uh I'm not overstating this, Grant, to say that this is a problem, but just discovery is a big problem. Let's—I mean, if we can look at like the National Hockey League for a second, they have a deal with Turner and, and ESPN. That's that's great. For the Capitals game last night, I didn't know if it was on my RSN, Hulu, ESPN, ESPN Two, ESPN Plus, TNT, or or or, or, or who, who knows <laughs> where I, where to see it. Like I have to go through all those areas, and so my point is. With by the time the Premier League deal ends, the, the, that that's going to become better. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that that, that the networks certainly see, see that as a problem, and 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 the discoverability of uh, actually that's a, such industry jargon there. I'm not sure if the, <laughs> if it's even a word, but the way to let uh, fans find the games and mm-hmm. hopefully find them in, in a more um, uh, price conscious uh, ma- manner. Hopefully, that's going to get better. Fingers crossed on that front. Seriously, one more question for you, and really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Now that the Premier League rights are settled, the next big U.S. contract for soccer on the market is the MLS rights, and I, I guess the U.S. soccer rights are out there as well, and they're going to be separate from the MLS rights this time. Um, but the MLS rights. We could get some news in the next month, potentially. What do you see happening with those now that we know NBC has won the Premier League rights? Here's the good news uh, for MLS is that uh, the the um, the Premier League rights went to one media company. And so and NBC, I'm sure they're going to kick the tires on MLS, but they're, they're most likely not going to be interested in, in MLS. And so you have now ESPN... You have Fox, who currently have the MLS rights. You have CBS, who, who have really been making a big play in soccer, trying to trying to uh, get those rights. Now you have this new monolith of Warner Media that could be out there l- looking to uh, to just add rights because you know rights aren't coming up every every year. So th- this is a MLS. They're a major U.S. Uh, a sports league. Um, that, that are out there. And then you have Amazon. I mean, would Amazon be interested in it? Uh, one of the problems with uh, MLS is that the uh, their, while their ratings are up, uh, the, the, uh, the viewership is still very, very small by TV right. standards. Uh, but they've, they've done some really unique things w- with, their, uh, with their package. They brought in all of the local rights uh, for, for the package. Uh, I expect that there's going to be a, a, a well. I know there's a lot of interest right now. I expect that they're going to see a, a you know a, a pretty good deal coming out of this. I can't begin to handicap 
who's who's uh, who's going to get it. Uh, Fox, I think, is most likely coming out because they they spent so much on Euros and 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 their strategy. But that still leaves CBS, ESPN, Warner Media, and then you know poss- possibly an, an Amazon that would could, could come swooping in. Well, that's going to be an interesting story to follow as well. It seems like this almost never stops. John Orand works for the Sports Business Journal and co-hosts a terrific new podcast with Andrew Marshand of the New York Post called the Marshand and Orand Sports Media Podcast. <laughs> John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, Grant, anytime you ask, you do a great job. I've I've loved following. I've learned so much from you. I've loved following you. I really I, I appreciated the invite. All right, we're back for segment three. Chris Whittingham and I are going to break down the MLS playoffs. We're four games in, four home teams winning, my man, which I don't know. Call me crazy. Like, I want to, I want the regular season to matter. So I'm a neutral. I kind of like the fact that the four home teams won. Yeah, it's creates a greater sense of urgency in the run into the season because there is obviously the race to make the playoffs, but I think the race to finish top four in each conference is now going to become a much bigger deal. And I think you're going to see perhaps teams redoubling their efforts over the course of the regular season to be more consistent, to win more games. Maybe draws aren't as important. So we got to go for wins because you have to finish in the top four because so far we've seen four home teams win. You see a team like New York City who have a particularly bizarre home field, but one that really works for them. (laughs) They're really good at Yankee Stadium. And I think that if they can go back and you, you look at, they had a period in which I think they won one out of 10 or something like that. They had a, a, a swoon in August, uh, September, and into October. If they had gotten that corrected quicker, they could have been up there for number two in the East. I think they would like to have this next round at home because they're that good at Yankee Stadium. So it absolutely, for me, underscores the importance of the regular season, which I don't think happens often enough. And if I'm MLS... I'm holding up these home results and saying, hey, the regular season matters. You can think it's too long. You can think too many teams make the playoffs. But in the current format, making the playoffs as a top four seed is really important. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Let's go into the details here. I actually don't want to spend too much time on Philadelphia 1, Red Bulls nil because <laughs> I, I, I already spent too much time. I spent 120 <laughs> minutes on this game. I have to tell you, I kind, I kind of enjoyed... Just how committed to their identity. Like, once I saw, it kind of dawned on me like an hour before kickoff, oh, this game's going to be terrible. Because it's two teams that all they do is they press and they play direct and, like, they will hate a through ball where a through ball does not exist. Like, that's the Red Bulls. Just through ball, through ball, through ball. They, like, they if they're playing FIFA, they mash the Y button over and over and over again, trying to find the moment. They never found the moment. Um, But, yeah, you just kind of knew that this is going to look like a game from the 1800s, and that's exactly what it was. I'll tell you what, though. At least there was a great moment, you know, like a a game-winning moment. Uh, Glessness has had so many memorable goals now from the defender position. He has another one here, slightly different from some of his other memorable goals in that he kind of spun this one uh, as opposed to just driving it from like 40 yards. <laughs> but <laughs> terrific goal. And in Philadelphia, I do think deserved to win the game. But um, it was a cool moment to see how that transpired right when everyone thought we were going to penalties. Yeah, I mean, 123rd minute for a winning goal. And there were some special goals in MLS this weekend. And that was certainly one of them. Delirium at at a stadium that just hasn't had a big playoff moment like that. 
and you know, you know, a group of fans that have gone through a lot in their kind of first seven, eight years. They they're producing Academy products. They've had they won the Supporters Shield last year. You know, it's a it's a it's a supporters base that I think you know Philly is a great soccer city. They deserve to have a great MLS team, and they're getting it now. And they get a big moment, and you saw just what it meant to those fans. That was an incredible celebration. Hundred and twenty third minute to win a game. That was really fun. Agreed. At the end of a pretty poor game. I will say this. I think it's the last 123rd minute game winner I've seen since the Abby Wambach goal in the 2011 Women's World Cup, famous one against Brazil. Although that, that uh, wasn't a winner. That, that was an equalizer. Oh, it was an equalizer. Good point. That's right. Went to I, penalties. It, it, it felt like a winner. Yeah. But like 123rd minute goal, at least, just you don't see that too often. Um, the, were, you, were, you cap, in the stadium? Like, were you in the stadium for that Abby Wambach goal? I was, and yeah. I was one of the few people journalistic, uh, journalistically who wa- who was because like yeah. that World Cup, if you remember in 2011, what didn't get that much attention until no. that that Wombat goal in the U.S. finding a way to advance, and then a bunch of journalists came over for the last week. But um, yeah, just one of the more incredible things I've ever hard, seen. Hard one to uh, find on YouTube, but I, I'm not kidding; it still gives me goosebumps. Like Ian Dark's commentary <laughs> still gives me goosebumps. <laughs> and then the nightcap, we had Kansas City 3-1 over Vancouver. And I, I will say this, it's just some, there's some good goals in this game. You mentioned great goals all weekend. Graham Zussi was just a phenomenal goal uh, in this one. Good to see Graham Zussi still having a big impact in games that matter in MLS for Kansas City, the only team he's ever played for in this league. Uh, it, this game also had maybe the worst handball penalty i've seen all season (laughs) where felipe just is like running with his hand out in a random part of the the penalty box and the ball hits it and i still don't understand what happened there yeah some bizarre things happen in mls some incredible goals but i mean you also saw i mean tati castellanos's goal for new york city was incredibly strange yeah i mean I, i feel bad for vancouver because they're, for me, were the story of MLS entering the playoffs. Vanny Sartini, what a character. If you have not read up on Vanny Sartini, if you've not watched the segment of Canadian television, a morning show going and making pasta with Vanny Sartini, go and find that on the internet. It is delightful. He's a great man, and I hope he keeps a Vancouver job on a permanent basis. But... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, it was the end of their Cinderella tale. They made the playoffs, but uh, couldn't get beyond a sporting Kansas City team. And that, for me, is a real strong signal from them, just because last year they struggled with the earthquakes before going out uh, of, of the postseason. They've kind of had some rickety performances. They have not been strong defensively in the playoffs the last couple of years. If they can figure out their defense, they're as good a team as any to win MLS, in my opinion. They're actually the team that I would have picked ahead of the playoffs to go and win MLS Cup. I really like the Sporting Kansas City side. They just need to be solid defensively. Good start against Vancouver. Definitely. And then on Sunday, the first game, New York City 2, Atlanta nil. The goal's coming uh, pretty quickly early in the second half, including this, like bizarre chaotic MLS goal that Tati Castellano scores where he he hits the ball off the ground and then it's up in the air for a, a freaking eternity yeah and nobody nobody really does anything for Atlanta and then it's in the goal yeah George Bello just kind of stood and watched it and was kind of like huh 
I wonder what's going to happen here. And Brad Guzan did the same thing. And you're watching it on television. You're going, that's not going to go in, is it? Did that just go in? Oh, I guess it went in. And like, I think it caught everyone by surprise, including John Champion, who's just like, what was that? And it's and th- that happens all the time. And MLS are just watching and going, you're going, where in the world would that happen? Is this the only place in the world where that happens? And fair enough. And I, I thought like, it wasn't an unjust reward for New York City. They were the right. much better team coming out of halftime. In my opinion, they could have scored three, four, or five coming out of halftime. They were so much better than Atlanta. It was the correct thing to have happened in the game in that moment. It just came about in a very strange way. And uh, Tati Castellanos, the golden boot winner, uh, gets a goal in the postseason. Really cool video, by the way, from a few days ago where the club brought his mother up and, and surprised him now that you can have visitors from... Um, other countries come back into the United States again. I thought that was a really cool thing. Uh, New York City's just been such a strange team over the years. Like, they've had quality. They've had good results, but they've never really made a playoff run. And so... I think that was only their second ever playoff win. Yeah. They just haven't done it in the postseason over the years. And and I do wonder, I mean, they got a tough one now, having to go to the Revs, uh, far and away the best team in the league this season. So I'm curious to see if they can make it a game. It's not going to be at Yankee Stadium, so I think it's going to be a challenge for them. But, um, you know, it's good for that club to to get a win, and they deserve to win. In the nightcap, Portland 3, Minnesota 1. Minnesota goes up early, but Portland comes storming back. Sebastian Blanco is healthy again. He's scoring goals again. He's a tremendously dangerous player. I think if he played the way that he did for the last 12 to 15 games that he came back healthy over the course of a 34-game season and what we're seeing in these playoffs, he's, for me, the only player in the league that rivals what Carlos Hill did in terms of an MVP campaign. Daniel Shallowy was great. Demir Krylock put up big numbers. These are guys that, that perform well. Ola Kamara, Tati Castellanos, you can talk about. But for me, Blanco has that kind of impact on a team. He is that good. Portland at home are really difficult to beat, and you saw the tide of the game turning against Minnesota. They started well in the first half hour, but you saw they did a really good job marking Pabello Reynoso out of the game, who is you know one of the best creators in MLS and is a really fun player to watch, but... Portland had a really good game plan for him. And then eventually the tide turned, and Sebastian Blanco is a tremendous player. And when he's on that kind of form, you can see how Portland can now go on the road. And if you can lean on that kind of performance, he can potentially lead the Timbers on a run here. And I think they're probably the team for me. If it's going to be a non-home side that goes on a run and wins a couple of surprise away results. Would not be surprised if it's the Timbers in the slightest. Well, and if you look at the history in recent years of the MLS playoffs, Portland has had a lot of success winning on the road in the playoffs. So that's definitely one to keep an eye on, even though the dominant storyline right now is it's all the home teams that are winning. I love the MLS playoffs. I'm going to come out and say it. I love the chaos. I love the fact that you're going to eliminate a team in every single game. There's something at stake. Uh, I've got questions about, you know, the importance of the MLS regular season. I don't have any questions about the MLS playoffs. I enjoy them greatly. One other story I want to get into, Bob Bradley out at LAFC. His contract ended after four years. And not necessarily a huge surprise here. LAFC didn't make the playoffs this season. Lots of injuries. Barely had Carlos Vela at all. 
I also think, and we had Walker Zimmerman on the show not too long ago talking about that to me was the trade that changed everything for LAFC. And I, and I don't think Bob Bradley, that wasn't necessarily his call. I'm sure he had something to do with it. Um, but it really hurt that team and they never have been the same ever since. Um, it looks like Bob Bradley potentially headed for Toronto. That's not set in stone yet, but there's going to be teams that want Bob Bradley. Oh yeah, if you have a managerial opening and you don't call Bob Bradley, what are you doing? Like I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that Chicago filled theirs before right. Bob became available and they're going to have an earnest conversation. They hired Ezra Hendrickson and hopefully he does a really good job. He certainly deserved a promotion to a full-time managerial position for a while, but For me, what's interesting going forward here is with LAFC, I feel like Bob has laid such a foundation, not just of success, and you think of LAFC as a big club in MLS now, but they do it in a particular way. And not to sound like Manchester United at the beginning of the show that they have to be that team now going forward, but it would kind of bum me out if if, if I didn't turn on an LAFC game and I wasn't thoroughly entertained by it because that's what LAFC have been for four years. Even when they've been unsuccessful, they're still, I think, the most fun watch in the league, particularly at home. And I, I saw today there was a report from Fox Deportes that they were linked with Antonio Mohamed, who is the former Monterrey manager and while he was incredibly successful at Monterrey I think won a, won a league title won a CONCACAF Champions League there um, but that's the antithesis in terms of style of play and so I certainly hope that LAFC do kind of maintain a through line of what the identity that they've established not just this, the, the success that they've had Frankly, when I thought that Tata Martino was getting sacked as manager of Mexico, I thought he would have been a perfect fit to take over at LAFC. But uh, we'll see what they do in filling that position. I do think it's important to say Bob Bradley did at LAFC things that we haven't seen in this league. And that's in terms of they did set a points record for the regular season since eclipsed by the New England Revolution. But they also played a style, as you mentioned, that was really... I would even go so far as to say unprecedented in MLS. I agree. Just, just the agree. way they played the game, and, and I thought it took things to a new level, and I think it's something that Bob Riley can be really proud of uh, from what he achieved there, and I'm excited to see what he does next because that's a style that he's associated with now, and he's going to want to bring that to wherever he goes next. If that's Toronto, great. That's a club that can spend and provide him Uh, with players, I think, to turn that team around. They've got a lot of work to do uh, for sure there. But uh, really good talking to you, Chris. Thanks so much for breaking down the weekend. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank John Orand as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. We'll see you next time. 